This week on Dig Me Out, Bill Janovitz of Buffalo Tom joins Tim and Jay to discuss their album, Big Red Letter Day. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 201. 201 episodes in the books. Well, this will be the 201st episode. 200 in the books. We have um, wrapped up our very long discussion on Use Your Illusion as promised. And we're getting back to, I, I would think, our charter mission as we set it out uh, four seasons ago, which was to uh, dig out the alternative and independent rock of the 90s that we were um, fans of or that we thought other people uh, thought we should be fans of that we hadn't checked out yet, and we were checking it out. So we're going back to that, Jay. And uh, uh, I've been napping for a week after the Use Your Illusion episodes. I don't blame you. <laughs> going into hibernation after that was well worth it. Cause, it took every bit of energy I had out of me. Yeah, yeah. 30 songs. Some of those are 10 minutes long. You got you to gotta rest after that. I understand. Axel so, had a lot to say. We're getting back to our roots, and to do so, um, Jay, this is an album that you suggested, but it's one that a lot of our listeners have been enthusiastic about us checking out, and it's um, Big Red Letter Day, the album by Buffalo Tom from 1993, and to help us uh, dig deep into this record and into this band, we have, uh, from Buffalo Tom, Mr. Bill Janovitz. I hope I said that right. Is, is it Janovitz, Bill? Did I say that right? Yeah, you got it. Yeah, perfect. Excellent. I understand as a person who's had their name mispronounced once or twice, their last name, uh, it's important to get people's names correct. So take care, great care with that. Uh, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. Excellent. So I mentioned in our pre-show talk, this is a record that Jay and I are, are both fans of and... Um, we, we don't like to tackle some of the records that we're big fans of because uh, we don't have anything negative to say. but And that does make for an interesting discussion. But we do <laughs> like to ask questions. And we have lots of questions for this record and for, I guess, just overall the band. Um, Jay and I, just to give you a little history, we were DJs. We were the guys playing your record at college radio stations back in the 90s. Um, so we were on the on the Buffalo Tom train back long ago um i remember the first record we got in the studio that i was like oh what's this was let me come over which came out in 92 that was my freshman year of college was when i got that Ooh. record so and then big red letter day came out the year after which i actually wanted to ask you a question about that um those two those came out a year apart um and your first record came out in 88 and then the second came out in 90 so there was two years between records uh, did you guys just have a lot of material at that point that the record came out so quickly after Let Me Come Over? Uh, no, you know, it's funny. Uh, back then, we were working nonstop. So we actually had our second record, Big uh, Bird Brain, rather, uh, all done by the time the first one came out, or at least pretty far down. I think it was all done. I, I'm, I'm just starting to... Uh, go back and challenge some of my old memories and and figure this some of this chronology out a little bit. But I think this I think the first one actually came out in 
uh, yeah, either 88 or 89. I know our first real sort of European tour was 89, fall of 89. Um, so the record must have come out in 89. I think we recorded it in 88, you know, up up and finished it up in, in or sort of the 88 range. So, I, um, yeah, I mean, then, uh, then we went out on tour and uh, on that first record and, and quickly sort of got a deal ready together for, for the second record, which was mostly... Uh, on Beggar's Banquet Records was our, our sort of pop label. <clears throat> they did some licensing and things. So, yeah, we were on the road, and uh, so that's those are those two records. And then we sort of took a little bit more time to do Let Me Come Over, and um, that was a big record for us in terms of touring and other things. And we were out on the road with multiple tours in the States and Europe. Um, so it didn't, I mean, it really kind of felt like a little bit longer to me, but it was really, back then it was really just kind of a, a merry-go-round of tour, record, tour, record. Uh, but we spent, we spent way, we we've probably spent the most time on Big Little Day to this day on one record that, you know, so it was over, it was over six weeks in, in Los Angeles. Gotcha. So the, the band formed essentially at the University of Massachusetts um, at Hammers, correct? Yeah. But were you playing in bands like in high school before that? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm the youngest, I like to point out, in Buffalo Tom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we're each a year apart. Tom is the middle brother, and, uh, and, and Chris is the older of, by two years over me. Uh, and I moved to this town called Medfield, Massachusetts, from, from New York. And that's where Chris was living, but he was, um, since he was two years ahead of me, he was already up at school by the time I came to high school. But we had mutual friends, and a lot of uh, other friends that I would go up and visit people at UMass when I was still in high school uh, were made friends with these guys from a different town uh, called Andover, in, you know, where Phillips is. And um, that's where Tom McGinnis grew up. And I remember going up to see Tom McGinnis playing in this high school, uh, college band by that time for him. With his cousin and, and another guy, and they were amazing. Uh, they did. They, they were called Plate of Mutton, and they had all this great original material. And uh, I, I just, I instantly sort of latched on to, to Tom. He was playing bass at that time um, in that band. And um, yeah, I was I was in different high school bands that weren't anything like that. You know, we were mostly playing covers and silly originals. These guys had really great songs. Uh, Thanks to his cousin Phil Rattel, who was this great singer, musician, guitar player. Uh, so it was really inspirational. So, um, and my high school band was a little bit younger than me, so they were still in high school. So I was kind of a man without a band there for a couple of years up at UMass. And um, you know, long story. I won't, I won't, I won't derail the, the podcast too much with, with all the details. But uh, you know, we formed up there. I, I got to school in '84. The band really started, we formed in the fall of, uh, and, and started playing parties in the fall of 86. That's, that's where I'm kind of curious. So did you have a record deal with SST while you were in college? Yeah, for me, it was like I was just leaving college when we were signing. I mean, you know, I don't know how deep into the stuff you want to get, but we, we sent out, we, uh, Chris, like I said, Chris was, so Chris was probably graduated. He was still hanging out up there a little bit, painting houses and things like that. And Tom had spent a semester or two back in Boston, taking some time off. And he was a year ahead of me. So, I mean, technically they might have been out of school. I might have just been at the end of my semester. Gotcha. But we were certainly, we were certainly going up to Boston and recording that first record of piecemeal with, with Jay Maskus. But 
our first label that we actually signed was was, was a Dutch label um, called Megadisc, um, and they had put out this Gun Club Live record, which we had. And so we were, we, you know, back when we were sending out tapes, we were just going through our record collection, and they were the first ones to bite. And um, SST bought very a bit very quickly as well, especially with the Mascus connection, I think. And Greg mm-hmm. King was was interested in it. So, but it was just a one-off deal, and it was only in the states. Actually, I think he, I think SST had it in the states and in the UK. And Megadisc was uh, rest of the world, Europe kind of import kind of thing too. Okay, so then how did Beggars get involved? Because they're one of those labels that like. Like, I think of like I think of them in the same. I mean, they're connected to 4AD, and they have these like, I I don't know. They seem to just all of a sudden there's just amazing bands that just appear on their labels, and you're like, where did that band come from? Like all of a sudden, you know, the the Pixies are on 4AD and or Cocteau Twins or all these bands that like you they have you don't really know where the <laughs> the backstory is necessarily on these bands pre-internet like back then. You know, they would just be like, oh, my God, here's another amazing band that's coming out on 4AD or, or Beggars. If you were like one of those people that was, uh, you know, interested in labels, not necessarily, you know, following particular sounds, but just like 4AD is always putting out really cool stuff or Beggars is always putting out really cool stuff. How did how did you guys end up? Was it through SST that you got hooked up with them or was it through that mega disc or was that completely independent? I think it was sort of concurrent with I, I, I'm almost certain that we would have we were beggars would have been first on our list to send tapes to because as you point out they were the papa label of 4AD uh, Martin Mills is the is the founder of uh, first it was a record store then it was a label mm-hmm. and they were already a big label uh, a lot of the records in our collection by the fall and um, you know died pretty and the cult to I mean I wasn't a huge cult fan but you know you know we were really into that label and I was really into 4AD stuff and so the Pixies you know I went to go see Pixies with Chris and probably Tom as well uh, in a bar in Northampton which is you know next to Amherst uh, where we went to school uh, and it was like you know if there were 50 people there that's that's an exaggeration of how many people <laughs> it was I mean the, the, the it was a really kind of an empty it was a place called Sheehan's where I, I saw like whips there and it was a tiny basement the place you know and and but I, I there was this buzz about the pixies around Massachusetts already and they you know they had sort of not formed but uh, Charles met uh, Black Francis met Joey up there. Uh, and then they moved to Boston to form the Pixies. So they were they were up at UMass as well. And uh, we talk about you know Mascus sort of knew that they had met those guys back then, but it was well before they were in a band. So anyway, I'm sure we sent tapes to to those guys. I, I love 4AD records. I was really into this Mortal Coil and Cocktail Swims and mm-hmm. all kinds of great stuff. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know. I, I mean, I use it a long way of saying I don't, I don't quite know. Well, I think Beggar's Banquet started to show interest, but we were probably already a little bit along the lines, and we were certainly signed to Megadisc in, in a not great contract, frankly, uh, as most first record contracts tend to be. Um, so we kind of reworked the contract. We had a really great New York lawyer uh, who helped us fix that contract a little bit and reset it, basically. And, and it's always technically been a licensing deal, from and when I say Megadis Records, it's that's a it's a great guy. He's a, he's a, he's one guy. He's a nice guy, but uh, he's not just doing a, a horrendous contract for us, frankly. Uh, but uh, so we kind of reworked this deal and beggars. Um, you know, you can always make a different deal. It's not it's not it wasn't a standard record deal. And, and 
honestly, we never had what I would consider, you know, what most people consider a standard record deal. We were like, first we had Megadisc, then we were Megadisc SST, then we were Megadisc, Megadisc um, uh, Beggars. And then Beggars really acted as our label from then on. And, and Rick, the guy from uh, Megadisc, was sort of always around, but... Um, you know, he, he he was he was just a friend, really. At that point, he, he still had business interests in us, but he wasn't making any kind of I don't know input or any, anything like that. You know, um, and then but then then beggars start you know get into this as well. So then then they started licensing us to U.S. labels, some of which were major labels later on. Gotcha. So with, did they have like a? Did you have a um, like a setup where it was a number of years or a number of albums, or was it just an a, an album to album sort of deal? No, with Megadisc we signed uh, a multiple record deal. With SST it was a one off license from Megadisc, uh, and then we signed a deal with Beggars and Megadisc sort of as partners. And those that was a multiple record deal, and we ended up doing uh, I don't know five records through that that system and some of which came out on East West or uh, RCA records here. Uh, Let me come over was uh, I think a BMG RCA label uh, situation here in the States. So, you know, it's uh, my, my, my own eyes start to glaze over when I talk about this stuff. I can only imagine you guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it's pretty interesting. I mean, we've talked to, you know, a number of different people and they all have sort of interesting, weird stories about, you know, how they're, deals went down or what sort of machinations were involved in them signing and weird aspects of their contracts. And there's always some odd story. You know, we talked with uh, uh, a guy who runs like the Afghan wigs website uh, or not the actual website, but like the fan site. And he was telling us about the, the wigs deal where like Greg Dooley had it written in that he had the, the, when he signed with Electra, it included like he got the option of book for a screenwriting job or something like it was like bizarre. It was just like, one of those things where, you know, you could do weird deals or the Rocket from the Crypt one was bizarre, too, where they got, like, not just Rocket from the Crypt, but also Drive Like Jehu was signed to a major label, which is insane. Like, they were on Interscope. There's some good books on this topic. And the most recent that I've read was Danny right. Goldberg, who, um, you know, managed Nirvana and goes all the way back to being a publicist for Led Zeppelin and then all the way up through running a label uh, as, as head of Atlantic and WIA. And um, the, 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 I think the most interesting takeaway from this sort of stuff is not so much the, the business side of it, and, and it's, it's really kind of like how important certain labels were, like to be on SST Records. Uh, I mean, I just kind of glossed over some of the, uh, the chronology and facts, but I mean, it was. It meant so much for me to be on SST Records, even though they were starting to dissipate. Uh, or I guess that's the word. Uh, the, you know, watered down their sort of brand at that point. I mean, at one point, they were labeled just like Sub Pop, where you would just go in without hearing the records and buy them because right. they were on that label because you know they were going to be good. You know, but then SST started putting out stuff that was just not. not not that interesting, and and frankly, to be to be honest, I think a lot of people, you know, the hardcore sort of dudes uh, might have thought that about us that they were kind of going over the one the commercial realm that way with us because I think we we were a bit of a bridge into the, what what became in the '90s because we like I said we were signed in the '80s we came from that sort of our band could be your life model where we were on the road uh, touring these sort of post punk uh, circuits basically that were that were paved by these you know, um, Husker Du, Replacement, Sonic Youth, Dinosaur, a little bit before us. 
we pop it for those kind of bands, of course, not the Minutemen. And I mean, those records were all very important to me as uh, high school into college. And um, so, so that was very important. And then what you saw in the 90s was stuff that was breaking. And, and of course, the, the big moment was Nirvana, was Nevermind. And then everybody was, it's like any kind of corporate thing. It's like they're, they're, they're not nimble. They're not there. To, they don't have a great they're not they're not detecting trends so much they're just signing labels who were to, who were finding these bands and that's why I don't know about Drive Like Jehu Jehu in particular, but a lot of bands ended up going from, you know, Matador to uh mm-hmm. Atlantic uh, kind of model, you know. And it's funny, uh, just one more point on that topic. I remember playing with Soundgarden at a at a club called The Rat in Boston. Again, only maybe hundred and fifty people there. But they had um I think they had signed to A and M, but A and M was hip enough to, to to know that they should put it through SST. That was kind of the room. I, I I don't know if that's actually if my memory of that's correct, but they had. I think they were signed to A and M, and and they put out the record on SST. Or I think they might have, in their in their telling of the story. I've heard it said that they kind of put off signing with a major, and, and instead they knew that they should put it out on SST. Uh, and then signed with a major, like something like that, because they knew it would it would give them more cred to do that. And that, that stuff is very important. Yeah, that seems then. weird. That mm-hmm. now there's absolutely no thought about like major versus indie, because so many indie labels have like 4AD now has a pretty not not a pop roster, but they have a lot of very successful bands on their roster now. It's not like like you said, putting out like this Mortal Coil or you know those sorts of bands, which were part of a very hardcore audience that was buying anything that the label put out. I don't think that people have that sort of instant uh, you know, appreciation for what a label is sort of curating as an overall sound or aesthetic. They're just sort of like putting out records and throwing them out there. Yeah. I mean, there's exceptions. There's exceptions. I mean, um, uh, Merge Records, I think is still a label. I mean, even though they put out some very different, uh, a wide range, a broad range of, of material, I think they're, they still got utter integrity, and so I think people really do. Uh, that that still means a lot to people, but there are fewer, much fewer, and much further between. Because um, I mean, you know, record deals are fewer and further between. Because I don't know, it's it's uh, who's signing to major labels anymore? It's, it's more. I don't know. I literally, I, I'm not asking rhetorically. I guess I just think that most people are. Uh, I think that most bands are sort of, especially with indie, the indie level thing, it's like, what do you need an indie for uh, unless you just don't, you know, because everybody's in Pledge or Kickstarter or whatever else and you got to direct to fans. Uh, I mean, you know, back then, what was great about SST was their, not only their sort of publicist and, you know, you're on SST, so you had a little bit of a headwind with that, um, or such a tailwind head start with that, and but most importantly, the, the booking agent was still with was an in-house booking agent named Steve Paul, who eventually went out on his own, and uh, he, he's actually a huge booking agent now. So that kind of stuff was all in-house back then, right? Like Rough Trade was doing that all in-house, and then they sort of split off into different components and whatnot. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into some of the. Um, some of the questions and some of the comments that the uh, listeners had, uh, and we can get into the album. One of the questions that we got, or one of the comments that we got, was uh, from uh, Brandon Trammell, who's a longtime listener of us up in Michigan. And he said, One of my favorite 90s bands 
He said, probably not their best, but still very good. And, and I sort of pushed him on this, and he, I asked him what he thought it was their best. He said that while most of the diehards would say, let me come over, he said for him it's Sleepy Eyed is his favorite record. Do you have a favorite album, or do you look back at any of the albums and go, that's the one where we hit our stride, that's the one where we were like clicking on all cylinders, or do they all sort of have a special place for you? Yeah, of course, the latter. But, uh, you know... I, I don't shrink away from, you know, every band has its peak, uh, I think, and it would be silly to argue otherwise. I mean, it doesn't mean you can't continue to make great records, but I, I think we certainly hit our stride uh, on, on Let Me Come Over, and I, then I think we took that idea to uh, a more logical, I'm not sure if that's right, but we took it to a logical step with Big Red Letter Day, and and. and the sound and the stride was sort of finding this acoustic electric balance and certain kind of songwriting that melded our, our influences a little bit more seamlessly, but also I think we had found a more distinct voice as a band and as a set of songwriters. And we certainly started to know our way around the studio a bit more, but um, going out to Los Angeles to record with the Rob brothers who had just recently before that done um, It's a Shame About Ray uh, by the Lemonheads, so a record that we really, really loved. I mean, you know, and it was rare for all three of us to really love, I mean, relatively rare for us all to be on the same page exactly with the same degree of of of, of love or hate <laughs> for something. And uh, we loved the sound of that. It was so classic and timeless, and that's what I think we were really aiming for with Big Red Letter Day. I mean, you know, it was sort of the height of the grunge era, but we had already sort of done that. We were I'm not saying we were men before our time, but we sort of were on that wave before it became big. You know, uh, it's a pretty sludgy record, Bird Brain, our, our second record. But when everybody else was sort of into that sub-pop thing, not everybody else, but a lot of bands, um, we were sort of more going in that acoustic, electric, Stone Dean, Neil Young, more classic balance. So we did that uh, to on, on Big Red Letter Day, I think, really beautifully. I, I, I think the sound of that record might be my favorite, but I also really love the sound of Sleepy Eyed, which was our first real reaction record. Like, oh, my God, I, we can't spend six to eight weeks, you know, making a record like we did. But I don't think we could have tossed off Sleepy Eyed as quickly as we did and as live as we did had we not gone through uh, Big Red Letter Day. I'm, I'm certain of it. But I think all those three records represent sort of a trilogy, not in terms of theme, but bam, 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 a band on the road, really hot, always on the road. And when they're not on the road, they were recording. And uh, uh, I think we were writing at, at our peak as well. I was just going to ask about the Rob Brothers. Did you, it sounded like you had the opportunity to pick who you wanted to work with and where you did that work. Is that the case? Yeah, producer? that was always the case. Yeah. Okay. And you yeah, based I it mean, solely on that rec- on the uh, Lemonheads record? Yeah, I mean, not solely. So um, I'll back up a little bit. On Let Me Come Over, we had uh, recorded with, uh, you know, each of our three records was, was done in some combination of um, Sean Slade and or Paul Colbury uh, with other people kind of coming in and out. So, you know, famously Mascus on the first two records. But a guy named Tim O'Hare, who, who went out to do like some Sebadell records and some other big records, he he had started with us engineering on that first record. So blah blah blah. So we get to Let Me Come Over, which was a, a Paul Coldery, Sean Slade production, and they they had been working 
more as a steady partnership for those last couple of years at that point. Um, and we were done with that record, but, you know, it was a time where digital was starting to come into play. And at that point, the digital um, component was mostly in the uh, automation of mixing. So you'd have a, a mixing board. And so we dumped everything into this board called an SSL, uh, Studio Sonics, what is it? Sonic State Logic, I think it's called. Um, and, you know, a lot of 80s records were made on those boards because they were really convenient. They weren't the best sounding, but they were the best sounding digital. So these guys, Paul and Sean, were still sort of learning their 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 way around those boards. I think they were learning as we went, frankly. And we didn't come up with the best mixes. And, and to your question, beggars said, you know, this is a really strong batch of material. I'm letting me come over. Would you like to um, remix it? We can get this guy Ron St. Germain in and, so we said, sure, we'll give it a shot as long as we have final approval of a mixer. So there was basically an increase in the budget. They got this guy who has his own private plane. <laughs> it's just done. Mm. Uh, I think he's just done um, Sonic Youth uh, Daydream Nation, maybe, or Goo, one of those records. And he had done Let Me, uh, not Let Me Come uh, On, In Living, uh, not, not In Living Color, Living Color. Uh, and uh, it was big 80s-ish, 90s-ish, early 90s. Arena, call, uh, radio, not not arena, like a radio sound, you know? Right. And um, we were a bit shocked when we got the mixes back. But for the most part, we got over our shock fairly quickly. Um, there were a couple songs we rejected uh, mixes. Maybe just one, in fact, Larry. Um, but uh, overall, I was just, you know, all of a sudden I'm hearing delay on my voice. So that, you know, it's just <laughs> kind of a shock when you first hear it, you know? Yeah. But, um, but other than that, yeah, we... You know, then we talked to the Rob brothers, but we, well, I'm sure we talked to a bunch of producers as we did uh, for the next couple of records as well. We would we would talk to different guys, meet with different guys, see, see, you know, let them know what we're thinking. And and the Rob brothers, we actually went out and tested a song with them that was on that Sweet Relief record. We just flew out to just do one song with them, and uh, we loved those guys. And and to this day, they were just the three of the warmest guys. And it was. It was like a comedy routine with those guys, um, but we, we can get into that if you want. But the, the the making of that record was filled with, you know, extreme highs and some some of my some of my own more extreme lows. In fact, but, uh, <laughs> it was a blast overall. Well, yeah, let's get into the, the making of the record. One of the things that I really enjoy about the record is the guitar sound. You mentioned that acoustic electric balance that's on that record, and I'm curious. Just from a technical standpoint, what was your like guitar setup at that point? Because I know in the video for um, for Soda Jerk, you're playing sort of like a hollow body cutaway, and I don't know if that's your actual no, guitar. No, no, no. Okay, no, I just that, assumed that that was sort of something for the. So what were you what were you playing at that point? What sort of rig were you running through? Well, I mean, my main live setup was, uh, and it still is, uh, my meat and potatoes is like a Gibson SG to do a Marshall JCM 800 100 watt single channel head and anything off of that is for variation of sound um you know and what we love and what i particularly love about going into a studio is are, are the studios with with a good and this is what, how fort apache was back in boston when we started doing our first three records there was this amazing set of amps and guitars and you could mess around with combinations of them plus your own and we took that to a ridiculous degree with um, Big Red Letter Day because they didn't have any stuff in the studio. But instead, we had a pretty good recording budget, and we just went and rented uh, all kinds of stuff. And 
a funny story about that is for for gearheads uh, is is that I really wanted a Marshall. Uh, just to have you know my 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 my, uh, my baseline amp, and they're like, oh, you gotta try this thing. And it, they pointed to this. I don't know if you guys are into this stuff at all. But it was a Saldano head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It you know it was covered in black and white snakeskin, and it had a <laughs> black grill thing with you know this, this this Saldano name on it, like it was some sort of weird sports car. I'm like, no 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 no, I'm not gonna. And they're like, you gotta try it. You gotta try it. Van, you know, Eddie Van Halen. I'm like, that you're you're making it worse. You know, yeah. <laughs> try it, and I tried it. And I I absolutely love that amp. It's it was like a hot rodded Marshall, and you can get a really good broad range of nice warm distortion out of it. Um, but you know, between that and like. Of course, I'm always using small Fender amps here and there uh, in the studio. And uh, I remember with Treehouse, we used a Rickenbacker. I, I really had a, a, a six-string Rickenbacker sound in my head, sort of like Pete Townsend, the you know a chiming but big guitar. So that that worked out well with that. Um, so there was a, a variety of things. I mean, Chris has a country gentleman, a Gretsch hollow body that we use a lot for feedback and warm low tones and whammy bar stuff but it's hard to play live so we only use in the studio funny that you meant, mentioned Pete Townsend and Treehouse because one of my notes on that song is that I felt like the, the chorus has a who feel. <laughs> what is more from the drum yeah. kind of dynamics and the fills and that sort of thing. I hadn't really put the guitar tone to it, but that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, people, you know, I'm a huge Stones fan, obviously. Um, and I don't know if it's that obvious, but um, it doesn't come through necessarily in the sound of the band. But I think with that song, it kind of did. Um, but uh, the who was sort of more of our attack because, you know, the Who is essentially a power trio with a lead singer. So as a, as an instrumental lineup, it's just the three of them. So they're covering, you know, Pete is just covering a lot of the ground and the other guys are, are, are trying to fill up those holes as well. So that's sort of what a power trio ends up having to do, you know, especially when you want to be a power trio is, you know, you tend to kind of play differently than if you were playing with another guitar player or keyboard player. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Because that's something I noticed on the record. Um, let's see, what song was it? Oh, Suppose. It's a song where if you listen to the guitar riff, uh, you could imagine what a a bass, and a bass player and a drummer might bring to it, and it would be a pretty not as an interesting song and they you know they they don't do that they're more laid back they're not pushing and the combination of what you're playing on guitar and what the the rhythm is doing is you know complementing each other how long did it take you you guys to figure that dynamic out and how to play off of each other as opposed to uh, i guess compete or you know kind of do the obvious um, you mean from the start of our career to that point, more or less? Well, the three, yeah, the, 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 the three, three guys in this band, how long did it take you to figure out how to do the, the trio thing and just how to play, to, play together? Yeah. I mean, um, so, you know, as I said, Tom was a bass player. He had started on guitar then switched to bass to be in his cousin's band. 
and then he switched the drums to, to play, <laughs> play with acid. It was something he, would, he had fooled around with drums because you know, they were left in his parents' basement when they were rehearsing, so he would always fool around with drums. Chris, I think I don't think Chris was thrilled to get styled with the bass, but um, I had most of the songs at that point, so it didn't really make sense for me to be playing bass. Uh, and Chris was into it. Chris was open-minded, and um, but you know, Chris attacked his bass, and to some extent still does as a guitar, and that was sort of the Lou Barlow thing as well. And I think Chris was probably pretty influenced by by Lou in, in that respect. Uh, he was around and really playing a bass through a you know Marshall head and strumming chords, and Chris was really doing that for a while too. And Tom was just really learning as he as he went there on the drums. So I, I mean, you know, I hear our first record, and I think there's some great stuff on it. Uh, I'm not as in love with most of our Bird Brain record. I think we we kind of went off into a my songwriting in particular went into a kind of a darker spot there, and we we're just they were trying things on. But as far as playing together, each each show and each record was a different uh, iteration towards that. Um, maybe maybe we really hit this hit it on on tour, you know, after Bird mm -hmm. uh, around first record Bird, and Bird Brain, so that when we did come into the third record, I mean, like I said, those first two records were done before we even hit the road, so that's why I think you hear a bit of a of a growth spurt on Let Me Come Over, something that we sustain at least for those three records, and um, uh, and then even to this, you know, to take it to another uh, end of things, you know, when we took a hiatus from each other we would regroup and play still once a year or twice a year here and there. And that chemistry, that bouncing off each other, as you say, uh, was sort of what kept us going because it was, it's sort of undeniable. It's a personal chemistry thing that we've got. Um, and some of it's just personal, the way we, the way we were attracted to each other as musicians in the first place and, and our sensibilities and our tastes, but also mostly just from playing for 20 years together uh, now, you know, 28 years. So, um, I was just out with them in September, and, uh, and I've played with a few different bands now, and it's just nothing like going home to Buffalo Tom in a way, because it's just like I don't even have to think about stuff. It's so second nature. go back to treehouse for a minute because i have a couple questions about that song well actually one of them is from one of our our twitter followers uh steve reynolds he asked what was it like having the water sisters sing your lyrics on treehouse i'm guessing he's talking about the backup vocals yeah. that are yeah. in that song and the, yeah. and the water can you explain who the water sisters are yeah so hey steve i know who steve is uh um the water sisters uh, now a lot, a, a lot of this stuff I've learned since. You know, most most recently they were featured in Twenty Feet from Stardom. Uh, they're probably the most featured in that, except for Lisa Fisher. Uh, a great documentary if, if people haven't seen it. It's just about uh, background singers made by a great director who I, who I know named Morgan Neville. 
Uh, and um, I, I didn't, you know, I I didn't know who they were. Um, I, I told the Rob brothers that I really wanted to hear like this Stonesy chorus at the end. You know, think of like how there's the coda of uh, you can't always get what you want, where it's it's, it's it, they get that great uh, sort of London Bach choir going. But I, I definitely wanted a gospel feel to it, and there are certainly the gospel changes of the chorus. So they said they didn't even as soon as I said women background singers, they just said water sisters and they just called and they were there. I don't know. I feel like they were there the next day. <laughs> and uh, I have a photo. You can kind of see a photo on Buffalo Tom and maybe my own Facebook page and one of the albums of me standing there with a pencil uh, pointing, or like kind of telling them how the arrangement goes. <laughs> and they're looking at me. You just see my back and you see the water sisters with like, one headphone on, looking at me, listening to me, and I—it was incredible to see them in that movie. And I had no idea at that point. I mean, the Rob brothers were telling me stuff that they were on, and I'm sure over the years, once the internet really became up and running, because it wasn't around the big of the day, uh, I think I learned all, their discography on AllMusic.com or something. And but they—they they were prominent on Thriller, you know, and that's just that's just probably the hugest record they've been involved in, but they're on so many other records and I mean what an honor to have them. And that's that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg for LA. I mean there was there was all kinds of crazy stuff about like, you know, who was coming in and out of there at any point in time, you know, from Jerry Goffin who I met to Hank Shockley who produced the the public enemy records to, you know, Rita Ford was there the entire time and uh, Rick James was in and out of our. He was hanging out on our couch in our, in our <laughs> studio. It's funny. I put up a picture of Chris. Wow. The final episode of Cheers with Rick James in, in the lounge. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Wow. Talk, That's awesome. Talk about choosing yeah. that studio. Was that uh, did that come with the producer, or did you guys make the choice to go out to LA to do that record? And did you yeah, pick they, the studio? They, they owned. Yeah, they owned the studio. So it's Cherokee Studios. It's uh, still there. I. Think. I think it's still there. Uh, one of the Rob brothers, D, has passed away. So, so the Rob brothers, a uh, little bit of background on them. Either this is they were true. They were their their last name was not D. It was something else. But there were three brothers uh, who um, grew up in uh, Michigan with an auto executive dad, and they hooked up with um, Del Shannon, uh, who I I don't know if Del was from Michigan originally, but I believe he was. And he got big, and they were sort of his band, and then they became the house band on the TV show Where the Action Is, which was a Dick Clark show uh, after Amer- or concurrent with American Bandstand in the, in the 60s. And so they got to play with all these people, Ricky Nelson, whoever else, and they would go out on these cavalcade tours, you know, and they would back everybody. And then they came back to, um, to Los Angeles during that mid to late 60s period, which was just the Sunset Strip, which is crazy, you know, and then they bought a ranch out in... Uh, next to the Spawn Ranch, where uh, Charlie Manson was. So they've got Manson stories, and they have their studio out there. Then they had a studio on a yacht at some point. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's just, I, I mean, I, I don't even want to tell you all their stories because they're their stories, but they involve, you know, freebasing and Ron Wood and, and Ringo Starr and Rod Stewart was there, and, you know. Then our dad walked in and he's freebasing with, you know, it's <laughs> just crazy stuff. <laughs> and so much of it was like, you know, do we take? Do we believe all this? And you know, and and then, like I said, there there we would be with Rita Ford and 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 Rick James hanging out. And, and in one day, by the way, mixing, I'm allowed. Uh, we were in the mixing room. So they had a, they, the studio was a complex of like three studios, 
a, a big Studio A, um, and then they had actually it might have even been four. I think it was three though. And then they had one with an SSL board, which I referenced before, which which was very attractive to hip hop guys. So Ice T would be there from time to time. Um, you know, different, and it was it was it was an interesting time because it was after the riots, soon after the riots in, in L.A. So there was a lot of weird undercurrents going on there as well. But in one day we were recording, um, I'm sorry, mixing I'm Allowed, and we had uh, Jeff Skunk Baxter there, David Lynch, and Angelo Baldamenti is his name, I guess, and um, yep. Gene Simmons from Kiss, all at different points in time during the same day. <laughs> it was like a bizarro... Uh, uh, talk show, you know, it's like, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you so, thank you so much, uh, David Lynch, for coming in. Now we're, uh, oh look, it's Gene Simmons. Uh, so, <laughs> so would they like sit and watch you record and work, or what were they, what were they doing? Yeah, so, so, uh, yeah, you know, it's just like popping, and they all knew the Rob Brothers who owned the studio, of course, and uh, and I mean, any at any given point with the Rob Brothers. You would you would maybe do about an hour's worth of work, and then three hours later you're you're at you're at the end of of hundreds of stories, or you know, or somebody pops out and you don't see them again for a little while. So it was a really easygoing mm-hmm. pace. You know, we only worked five days a week, and so that's why we were out there for a couple of months, I think. Um, but um, yeah, so they would just pop in and say, "Oh, you got to hear these guys," you know, and they they knew we were friendly and sort of starstruck by it all. So. Uh, I think anybody else they'd be a little careful with, but like, oh, you gotta, you gotta come in and hear this song. And so, uh, you know, I'm allowed. I think they really particularly liked, and they wanted to show it off. Uh, so uh, I remember um, just watching the back of David Lynch's head, and you know, he was, I was, I was really enamored by by everything he had done at that point. He was sort of still at his peak uh, of popularity. Uh, and I'm just watching him listening to my song, and uh, he turns. <laughs> It sounds like a hit, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and then, the uh, yeah, that same, that same day, I remember Gene Simmons singing. Uh, he got up in front of me, and he's because he, he, he was really passionate about Gene Pitney, apparently. So he's up in my face, like I'm sitting on the couch, and he's sitting, he's standing, he's sort of looming over me, huge guy, imposing presence, uh, and he's singing "A Town Without Pity" to me a cappella from start to finish, as I recall. <laughs> I'm surprised he's never taken credit for uh, your success. Like he just has yeah, a story well, that maybe he discovered you. It's, um, yeah, maybe if we had some some huge success, he would take the credit. <laughs> well, that never stopped him before. I mean, <laughs> according to him, he's invented everything and discovered everyone. So, yeah. yeah. Speaking of "I'm Allowed," I actually had a question about that song. Not to get all into the technicality stuff, but um, the guitar solo on that song is really cool. It almost sounds like a Leslie organ or something, but it's a guitar, I think. Can you kind of get into what the effect is and what you're doing with that yeah. solo? Yeah, I mean, the Beatles and the Stones both, and George Harrison in particular, love the sound of the guitar going through um, a Leslie speaker. Uh, I think there's a couple things on there. I think the main guitar that, that opens up the song, you hear the riff, is just a tremolo, uh, probably going through a Fender amp or something. Uh, and then that solo comes in, and that's going through a Leslie. And uh, so a Leslie's a revolving speaker, and, you know, uh, for your listeners that may not know what it is, uh, it's an organ speaker. It's really the sound of the Hammond organ in a lot of ways. And so you, you, you get these little preamps that you could plug your guitar into, 
and maybe even overdrive it a little bit, but you could also overdrive, send, put in a little overdrive pedal as well. So, you know, it's definitely a Beatles sound. I mean, the Stones didn't do too much of it, but it's definitely there on um, Exile with like Let It Loose and things like that, which sometimes I think people are listening casually. They think it's an organ and not a guitar, but it's actually a guitar. Yeah, I had to kind of pin my, you know, like really focus in. I'm like, is this, well, the notes that are playing, like it doesn't seem like that's a, that's a, that's not an organ hit. Like the way that the, the notes are hitting, it's got to be a guitar. Um, but I struggled with that for a little while. You performed yeah. that so- song on Conan O'Brien, um, and it's definitely more. Do you remember how you did that live? Because it's more pronounced um, on that performance. Yeah, yeah. At some point, um, I don't know if, if if I did it on Conan or not, but I, I used to uh, have a phase shifter, which would get mm-hmm. the rounding sound, you know, the, the sort of uh, revolving sound. But, um, you know, a, a, a Leslie has two speeds. It's, it's, it's sort of either slow, phase shiftery, like, you know, Hendrixy kind of, he used, to, he used to use different pedals to get that, like the neutron phase. And then there's also the fast setting, which sounds like the, uh, you know, shimmering, cascading sound. And so I, I used to hook up two pedals, and I kind of went back to that, uh, which is what I do to kind of approximate it now. Is a phase shifter and a tremolo pedal going at once, but... There's a really good. There's, there are a lot of really great pedals nowadays that, that get that sound, you know, almost exactly. Uh, you don't get the the movement of air that you get with a Leslie, but you get that shimmering sound. And um, so, you know, I, there's a Line Six mixer modulation pedal that can that can get a, a pretty good approximation, but they fall apart after a while. Can you talk about the uh, the performance on Conan? What, what was uh, what was that like? And uh, maybe even talk about that song a little bit because it sounds like there was you know some pretty big expectations for that song. I'm not sure. Um, uh, I, I know we were on Conan twice, and I, I don't know if we were if they were both on that record. But I think because uh, uh, Soda Jerk was the first single off that record, and that got pretty good. Play, but maybe we didn't get on Conan with that. Maybe we got on Conan with I'm Allowed, and then we're on Conan later with Summer, maybe, on the next record. I, I, I really don't know. Cause it, we were on Conan twice. We were on two John Stewart shows, and I, I always forget which songs were on which. Um, so, um, But, I mean, the experience of first being on Conan was, was thrilling. Um, it wasn't like being on Letterman was, you know, later on when we got to be to do that because Conan was uh, was a new guy on the block, you know, and and, and there was 
it was, you know, he, 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 I don't know if people remember, but he got off to a really rocky start and people were ragging on that show. And uh, nobody really thought it would be around for much longer. Um, but it, maybe by the time we were on there, it had started to mean traction. But I liked Conan a lot. And I really loved the, um, the guy who books it, named Jim Pitt, and he still books it. Uh, he's a fan and a good guy. And, um, but Conan was a great guy, a really friendly guy, came up to us, and he's a Boston guy, so he, he knew us. And, and we, 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 we talked about Boston stuff and we talked about my guitar. And, you know, I talked about a looming presence, and he's like seven feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, but the you National know, Zoo was a blast. I mean, just those days uh, of being out in New York and cars. And publishers taking you out to dinner afterwards. I mean, you know, you felt a bit like a rock star. I mean, it's, it's easy to get swept up on all that. And I just tried to enjoy it without worrying about, you know, what does this mean, you know? Mm-hmm. And you made videos for uh, Soda Jerk and I'm Allowed. What was what was that like, especially in that time period? I mean, videos were so important. Uh, how did you guys step into that? With that? What was that experience yeah, like? Videos really could make or break you and, and did make or break you back then. And I I was not anti-video. I, I you know, I used to love um, 120 Minutes and its precursors like Cutting Edge or uh, had a couple other alternative nations. I, I forget which shows were which, but they sort of became famously uh, 120 Minutes, I think was the longest lasting of their like Sunday night shows or whatever they were. And uh, on our first tour, you know, we got we were spoiled here in Boston. So many colleges, great college radio. That's how we got exposed to music. Uh, then you got to the middle of the country, and the only exposure that there was to new music were these sort of ghettoized, uh, you know, Sunday night shows on the video. It's like, but I, you know, that's the first time I heard. I remember the first time I heard "How Soon Is Now" by the Smiths was in a video, and just being struck by how beautiful the video was. So I looked at it as another opportunity. I hated doing them, though. I, I, I just felt like they were... I hated standing around and miming words and and hours and hours and hours. And there was usually, like, it was so uncomfortable, usually. And uh, the video directors had these ideas that they wanted you to execute. And sometimes I felt like... I really started to feel like that's where I was compromising. And I didn't want to be a complainer, you know, a lot of the time, because... You're executing somebody else's vision now, so it was a bit of a, it was a bit of tension with that. But um, you know, Soda Jerk did pretty well. I, I, I don't think it, it might have been a buzzing clip, but those were the kinds of things that really were like, oh man, we're gonna get all these spins. And I remember we got Kevin Kerslake for that one. He did the um, smell like Teen Spirit video, and he had done uh, the B video for Blind Melon, which was a which, you know, completely broke that band open. Like, that, mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody really knew who they were. So, uh, yeah, they were very important. And uh, to the extent that you actually could blow the equivalent of a recording budget on one video. Wow. That's, <laughs> uh, now that I know that, um, those videos, I can see the style between the three and that they all have like a unique set. Like, you guys are below the tree, mm-hmm. Teen Spirits in the gym. Um, so there's definitely a formula to, to what he was doing. And I, and as I could tell just by watching the video now, just how long you guys probably mimed that song standing underneath that tree. <laughs> it was probably, it, yeah, it, like it could have been days. It was out in the canyons, you know, and <laughs> just a <laughs> dusty portion. And I got to say, uh, of, uh, of the videos we've done, that was probably the most comfortable. I mean, uh, for I'm Allowed, we're in this 
house up in Big Bear up on a mountain because we, they wanted to get a wintry feel and it's freezing. And they wanted me singing in front of this screen, which you'll see in the video. It's kind of like a, a wire fence rusted sort of almost like a fire grate kind of thing. And it fell on my forehead. It like tipped over. And and the the director of that video was a tyrant and he was a jerk and he hate and he alienated them. He was yelling at the crew the whole day. It's just a bummer of an experience. We had to drive hours to get up from Los Angeles to to this place. And you know, it's just like, you know, it's like this is not what I got in it for to do this kind of shit, you know. Yeah, and the soda trick video was much better. <laughs> uh, the yeah, the second I, I'm allowed, it reminded me. It just felt very '90s. Like uh, it actually reminded me of Pearl Jam's Jeremy. I wasn't wasn't sure if it was uh, the same person or not, or if it was just you know some of the style. His name was Sam Bear. Uh, he was a nice guy to us, uh, but then it really turned into kind of a sour experience. Like he was really mm-hmm. frustrated. Artiste, and I think it, it, to me it had more of a. He, he had described it one way, like it was going to be this destroyed-looking film, um, and it turned out to be like a more of a VH1 feel. Which back then was there was a distinct difference between VH1 soft rock and adult rock. Thing in, in oh yeah, Jay, you'll remember Sam Bayer because he did the video for I think Holland Maggie's Alcohol. Oh yeah, and they didn't. They talk about it being miserable. You interviewed yeah. them. Yep. Okay. <laughs> it's a very strange. Yeah. It's uh, strange in the same way that the I'm allowed is, and I, they were miserable as well. So, I actually had a question about the treehouse video because it's a little weird. Um, is it? There's a giant stilted man with Gene Simmons hair um, mm-hmm. running through a forest, and a group of kids tormenting him, and then they burn him alive at the end. Yeah. Uh, do you do you understand what the concept is? Because I was a little lost, other yeah, than maybe but, like attacking Gene Simmons. <laughs> no, that was an allusion to, um, uh, and this was the director's idea. These two English directors. We went uh, outside of London in the forest, uh, out sort of, out sort of out in the suburbs. I don't know if we were west, out sort of near Richmond somewhere. Um, really, I, I actually kind of liked doing that. Cause the guys were really great, and uh, but uh, yeah, that was a wintry night as well. Um, so they had a, they, they had been taken inspiration from this creepy old movie called The Wicker Man. You ever hear that? Oh yeah, yeah. It's this old they remade it with Nicolas Cage a couple years ago. Oh, did they? Yeah, yeah so it's that, awful. That's what that was all about. They were kind of recreating that. So it was supposed to be this giant Wicker Man, and we were supposed to be. So you see us in the red curtain kind of tent, and that's supposed to be in the skirt of the Wicker Man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just talking about this film making you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought about that in a long time. I, you know, it's funny since I've got kids. I got, I got a daughter who's a sophomore in high school now, and a, and a, and a kid who just turned ten today, a boy. And every once in a while, it's been a long time, but uh, when YouTube starts to really become a thing, I pull those out and say, "Oh, look at this!" <laughs> like, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> look at Dad's long hair. That was another, another weird choice. Yeah. Oh, we're gonna have to have those same conversations with our <laughs> kids at some point. Not for a long time, though. Not for a long time. Um, and then the other question, actually, since we're on Treehouse, I wanted to ask you about the the lyrics. Specifically, uh, so this has been a lyric that has probably been stuck with me since I heard the record 21 years ago. It's in the second verse. You start out the second verse 
with the line, your hurt drizzles forth twice nightly, which even just saying it now is a mouthful. And I'm wondering how you arrived at that lyric because the melody is very, I understand the melody, but I don't understand the, the word choice because it's such a, a, a hard group of words put together and you have to spit them out. It's, I'm just curious about where the lyrics came from, um, not just in that song, but just overall, if you were writing in a more of an abstract sort of way when you're writing your lyrics, or if you were writing on concrete ideas, or if you were just simply doing the, the Keith vowel, Keith Richards sort of finding the melody based on, finding the lyrics based on the melody, or what yeah. your approach was. But specifically with, with that, that one has always sort of caught my ear and been stuck with me. Yeah, not just you said you're a bird or you're hurt, but if you're a bird drizzles forth twice nightly. It's the drizzles forth that it catches you. Um, yeah, you know, I, I that's actually that. I, at least what I can say about my my uh, songwriting on that one is that I, at least I sustain the theme from you know, there's this bird flying away and uh, you know it's the seasons changing kind of thing. Obviously, I you know if I could I, I could easily just the seasons change and blah blah blah, and then you've got then you've got moon in June, but I, I was trying to do something different. Um, that wasn't just a, a vowel movement, I should say. It was, you know, I I would write music, and then I would try to find the words to fit. So, and I'm, you know, I've been looking back through some journals recently, and, and most of my journals are not like narrative; they're all these random images, and I could see where I could see the literal, you know, for example, drizzles forth. Uh, was probably just some little poetic thing I put down, and I, and I, I just thought of like the rain uh, being delivered, like the rain, like a, a bird coming down from drizzle, uh, is probably what I was thinking there. But it was, you know, for me, it was like trying to find new ways to say things in, in a kind of stream of consciousness way, but really trying to tie them together. I was always very much under the influence of symbolist. Uh, era Dylan, you know, like surrealist Dylan of Highway 61, and like what the hell is he singing about with jewels and binoculars hang? You know, it's it's interesting, but what's he singing about? You don't know. It's just eliciting feelings, and you you kind of got an idea. And that's what I was really interested in back then. I've become less obtuse as I got older, and I wish I could have written more directly sometimes. But you know, I listened to Pavement. I listened to so many other bands that were doing similar things. Uh, and that was interesting to me. I was trying to figure out how to put poetry to pop music. Um, but I think it was often too clever or too obscure for its own good. And maybe that's one of the reasons we were never like a gigantic hit band. Uh, even Tangerine from a, a later, from the next record uh, from Sleepy Eye, there's a pretty direct pop song, but all kinds of silly, weird change uh, um uh, phrases, you know, um, what's, what, what, tons of phrases, I was going to say. Things that are, you know, there's a little bit of a pun in here, here and there. I, I think sometimes that, not that I was overthinking it, in, in terms, it's probably the, the case that I, I didn't think about it enough sometimes. <laughs> I just put something that fit the first time and didn't think of how it tied together with the first verse, for example. Gotcha. Well, I feel like sometimes you, and I and I like this in a lot of songwriters, is that the the chorus Although the melody of the chorus is same from chorus to chorus, the 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 words were not the same, and that can throw people off if they don't hear that same hook vocally every time. They get they kind of I don't know that confuses people in a pop sense. Whereas if you hear that simple like repetitive pop chorus, 
then that is what people latch on to. But if even if you're singing the same melody, I th- I, there's a band that I'm that Jay and I are both a big fan of called Cursive out of Omaha. And the lead singer, Tim Kasher, would often completely ignore the ver- the 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 words in multiple songs, but the melody would be exactly the same uh, in that second time through the chorus. It's just different words. And, you know, that I think that's a really interesting way to approach a chorus, but also it's probably a hindrance in terms of an overall pop audience who are not used to that sort of complexity. Yeah, uh, and, and <laughs> to call it complexity, uh, in my case, it would be flattering. It's not. It's not like Zappa or anything. It's uh, it's it's just right. it's it's just not, it's not. I don't know if I was really consciously thinking about it one way or the other. But Soda Jerk is prime example of what you're talking about. Like, it's it's a simple song, but um, for some reason, I feel the need to do you know. And same with Taylor's Fade. It's like each each chorus has a even that one. It sounds the same. Each phrase is a little different, and, and you know, to this day, I'm not sure if I'm singing the ones that are on the record or not. Um, and I think that's some. I think that's to a fault in our in our case. Like, I, I think we're, we were writing very, in, in a lot of ways, classic pop songs, and maybe that was the reason here and there that somebody just didn't watch out into it at the right radio station or something. You know, like, I mean, Cannonball was just when that came out of the radio from the Breeders. It was like, bam, you know. It, I wish I wrote that. Um, and then, you know, we got to like our, our later record, um, the, the last record before we sort of split up for a hiatus um, on Smitten. And we were in, a, in in the studio with Dave Bianco. We were in pre-production. Uh, he was the engineer and producer. And he came from this very classic school of, the, you know, he was one of these guys that came of age with the, when the Beatles were in itself. And so he was into the Beatles, big star, uh, birds and you know that kind of era, uh, Bad Finger, Power Pop, and he's like he was, he's you know the songs that didn't have bridges. He's like, where's the middle eight here? And and then don't just give me a middle, uh, an instrumental middle eight. Well, why aren't you writing words here? It's, you've got to you've got to have it basically. So <laughs> it was to an extreme the other way. It's like oh, there are rules that we were that we had been ignoring, you know. But mm. it um, to me it wasn't like punk rock ignoring it was just being ignorant of (laughs) some cases of of what pop structure should be but i think that was both to our benefit and detriment i think it made us interesting in a lot of ways not predictable but also probably might have cost us a little bit more mainstream acceptance but i tend to think the latter has more to do with uh uh, extra musical things like you know publicity and whether a front man looks a certain way and, and how they look in the video back then. Well, it's funny you mentioned middle eights because I actually have a question about one of the songs on this record that does have a middle eight. That's uh, would not be denied. Mm-hmm. I have a actually have a question. So there's the uh, the middle eight in that song or the bridge, whatever you want to refer to it as, and then you go into the third verse, and there's a weird thing that happens when you go into the third verse. The vocal sort of starts as an echo and then actually kicks into full volume. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? In that- yeah, I'm really glad you brought it up, in fact. Yeah. It, how, how is that achieved? Well, it's easy to do it now. Um, so sometimes, you know, you get into the studio and you want to try things that you've been listening to on your records or you want to capture a certain thing from your record collection, you want know, inspiration. Um, I'm glad you brought up the middle eight part of that because that is a classic example of what uh, Dave Bianco wanted on our 
on our smitten record, which was a bridge that was the climax uh, of of the story that that told the story. And that's where if you listen to Beatles stuff, that's what they do. You know, they it's like you, you it's like the setup, and then the middle eight tells what's going. Here's here's why I'm saying this, and then bam, you know. So, but then to get to that effect, there was that big rest after the bridge. It like just stops, and then it, and then it starts off with that um, you know sort of. Uh, half step up and half step down lick again. But in that space, I really wanted to capture a ghostly vocal thing, like a pre-echo. So if you listen to, um, what is it, Whole, Whole Lot of Love by Led Zeppelin, where it's like, way down inside, is that Whole Lot of Love? Woman, woman, you. Yep. So that was an accident on their record that they, that they left. Um, it had been imprinted on the tape. I forgot the exact details of that. But it wasn't an easy thing to do back then. Like now... You could have a pre-echo, you know, just switch it around digitally somehow and put it in there. But then I had this, you know, the Stones have all these have all these records where you hear Jagger's ghost vocal uh, sometimes very prominently. Like if you listen to Angie, for example, you hear Jagger's reference vocal where he was just singing with the band while they were doing the live basic tracks. You can hear him because he's singing in the room with them really loudly, walking around with a microphone and and. And so sometimes his ghost vocals are almost as high as his real, quote-unquote, overdubbed vocals that he, when, he, when he went in to do the real track. And the phrasing's all mismatched because he's still trying to write the song. So I wanted that kind of effect. And I drove, I drove Rob Brothers to the point of them being the most upset that we saw them during that eight-week period. Because first of all, I had, to, I had to articulate what I wanted. So I probably brought up a couple of examples. Then they felt like we were just chasing some sort of uh, uh, whimsical or whatever idea that wasn't really concrete or substantial to the song. And, and then they couldn't execute it right for the longest time it took us to get that uh to get that right and they were pissed off i mean uh, i i they're like you know i remember it coming to this point where it was like you really want to do this is this really because it was near the end of the recording sessions it's all driving each other crazy at this point and i remember chris leaving i think chris left the room because of the tension and you know so that's the best way we deal with things is uh often it's like if things are getting tense when one guy disappears for a few hours and and, and and that sort of thing but that's that's how how weird it got on that i'm glad you brought that up i would never remember that I was just going to ask, um, maybe it's more of a statement than a question, but just one of the things that stood out to me, especially going back to this record, was the um, confidence that you guys had in doing slower songs and um, you know songs that were ballads or approaching ballads. 
I feel like that was, especially in the way that you were doing them. I mean, they're very sincere and, um, you know, kind of hard on your sleeve at that time. I mean, I, I know my memory is that there weren't a lot of bands doing that. Um, and I'm so glad that, that you guys did do that. I mean, I think it makes it, those are some of my favorite songs now and, and it kind of makes it a timeless record for me. But was that ever an issue for you guys? Did you feel like you should be more angsty because music was angsty at that time and maybe you shouldn't be? Because at, at times it almost yeah. approaches like a country kind of thing, um, which is awesome. That's, but, a, uh, that's a great question too. Um, that's a great question. I, I, I have to put myself back in the mind, but I, I, it, it's not far from, from where I am now. Like I remember hearing, um, you know, emo bands that started to cite us as an influence before before that was a word, you know, before that mm-hmm. was a category, uh, because we were out there. And but we used to tour, uh, not tour a lot, but we played a lot of shows in various combinations with American Music Club or Mark Eitzel. So you know, like Eitzel would open up for us every once in a while. Sometimes I opened up acoustic for American Music Club. Not that we were friends. In fact, we we weren't really friends. It's just that sort of happen happenstance and uh, put us together. It's not that we were enemies or anything either. It was like you know, it was just like professional. Hey, how you doing? Good to But to me, I still, uh, a lot of people, a lot of my friends and, uh, and people really, 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 really loved American Music Club because it's like, and to me, they were one of those bands. Uh, I, I was going to backtrack a little bit. I didn't love a lot of the stuff, but the stuff I loved, I loved. I loved a lot, you know. Um, so oh. Lost Harbor, as you're called, or Last Harbor. I'm, I haven't listened to stuff, some of that stuff in a long time. But he he could be he could be a bit much for me, and I, and I was out there with my heart in the sleeve. But I would I would watch. I'd and go, man, I don't know how he pours it out like that. Um, it's over the top sometimes. I go, what I wanted to do is have um, my emotion tied to some concrete imagery that wasn't just about oh, you know the sorrows of young Bill here. Um, and Chris, you know, Chris as well. I mean, we have two songwriters, primary songwriters in the band. We really did write together uh, once we once we brought these songs. So you had Chris doing um, Late at Night, which is a, probably, if not our most emotional ballad. It's up there. I mean, Tell It's Fate, of course, and I know Louder are both big ballads as well. But it's really pouring. I, I mean, I know Chris, and I know... You know, and he knows me, and he knows where these things come from, and vice versa. And Chris and Tom just watches us both write these words. And Tom is the most taciturn guy you'd meet in a band, and uh, I'm sure he's just oftentimes like, "Wow, he doesn't, he doesn't, he just needs to look away while it's going down." You know. Mm. I'm glad you mentioned late at night because there's a history to that song for um, a lot of people in that it was featured in a very special episode of My So-Called Life, very prominently, almost a completely wordless scene where that song is almost basically a character uh, in that show. And I'm wondering two things. I don't, I don't remember if there was a... There was no video for that song, correct? Correct. So was there ever a thought of, hey, this song has just been on a national TV or this is going to be on a big TV show? Um should we make a video for it? Should there be a single out? Should there be an EP? You know, something correlating with that, with the release? Cause it was only about a year after, not even, I don't even think it was a year, total year, maybe a couple months after the album came out that the show was on. And then, um, I hear some tinges of, uh, in your, especially in like the guitar lead stuff that you're doing almost like seventies 
stones, like some of the uh, the more countryer stuff, or getting into like um, I don't want to say like Skinnerd, but like I, some of you know what I mean, like that country rock that I heard, I heard was taking the, place. I heard the band. That was the the band. That's that's a good one too, Jay. The band. So could you address those two very different points? Yeah, yeah um, uh, that, uh, that's an interesting song. I, I, obviously, that's a, that, that ties together with this emotional stuff uh, in a lot of ways. And, 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 you know, I just wanted to say that we, with our emotional stuff, up to that point, we were our shows were filled with a lot of boys wearing white baseball caps of the day, you know, like, with the word cocks on it, usually from, from, from South Carolina, I gather. Uh, frat guys. And untucked, yeah. They were either frat guys or guys that looked like frat guys. And so our, we sort of come from this garagey punk kind of circuit. Even right in, even when we were playing with My Bloody Valentine on the tour for uh, Let Me Come Over, uh, it was a bit more artsy, but... You know what we? I think our audience at that point was really these guys that were sort of just regular guys that were really wrapped up in the emotions of the song. The same kind of guys I think you see at Bruce Springsteen, because Bruce Springsteen can express his emotions in this cathartic way, and I think it was a very similar dynamic to it. Now I was never as gigantic. This was always a surprise to people, and I, I totally respect Bruce. And I grew up in in Long Island, and my wife is from New Jersey, and she grew up, you know, with Bruce as a saint. And to me, Bruce was always around in the 70s, and I just never quite got it all or, or you know, got some of it, but it wasn't like a guy for me. It wasn't one of my main guys, but I completely see the parallels, and I see our audience. But with late at night, all of a sudden, with that in that show, uh, the audience completely, the makeup of the audience demographics changed for the better. <laughs> there was just all, <laughs> a lot more girls, and they were... They were literally girls because a lot of those girls were teenagers when that show came on. So the, the women that we got, like my wife watched it. We were only, oh, what, 30, young 30s uh, at that, uh, maybe late 20s still. So she 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 was really into because it, it reminded her of her, of her husband. Just being the critical acclaim of the show was pretty consistent with you know what, what happened there with Freaks and Geeks. It was just like something that was realistic to some extent. Um Anyway, uh, we remember the buzz about the show, you know, itself, and then getting the invitation beyond it. We were like, totally, yeah, of course. And then seeing the script, and they mentioned the word Buffalo Tominate, like, I don't know, 200 times or something. It's like the joke that was amongst our friends was like, how much did you guys pay them per mention of that? It's so crazy how many times they mention your band. 
so it was the single biggest piece of publicity that we got at that time uh, that really helped, that you could see demonstrably, um, you could see the change. And it was a really beautiful experience. And meeting those kids, we were hanging out with Claire Dane, and we were just 15 at the time. And uh, they were hanging out in our trailer, um, Jared Leto, Really wanted to know what it's like being in a band because he was in a band with his brother already. His brother was in there, and they were, you know, it was just a blast. It was like to be the older guy talking to these kids who were kind of, and she was wonderful. And so, and you know, in fact, um, um, Devin Odessa, who plays her Big Two Shoes friend, we had her come back later in, in our Wiser video, video for Wiser, um, and she was fantastic. They're all great, and Claire was wise beyond her years it's i was i just couldn't believe how confident she was as a person uh so it was a great experience and then um yeah in terms of you know capitalizing on it and putting it on a single i don't know i can't remember i couldn't tell you right now what the thoughts were i think it was so far out from the records and i think they wanted to put that and they did and um sort of jerk on a nice little soundtrack which also sold very well and had um, Juliana on it and some other friends of ours, Sonic Youth, I believe, maybe even. And it was a really great record. I mean, there was these great compilation records in the 90s, too, like, you know, alternative soundtracks. And, um, mm-hmm. So I don't think we had, I mean, we had already done, like, I think that record was pretty much played out by then. And then it gave us this other boost. So it, it almost became its own video itself because they kept playing it. It was on MTV. Uh, so it really had a lot of legs, and I don't think we could have done, and, and, you know, I don't think there was any point releasing it as an actual CD single or something back then. Gotcha. I think you talk a little bit about the the guitar playing on that. Um, oh yeah, on that particular so, song. Yeah, I mean, Leonard Skinner was uh, was actually something that Chris and I both shared a love for as kids. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily hear that in particular, but I, I was, I mean, I wish I could have Steve Gaines or whomever, <laughs> or Albert Collins. Uh, the band were a bit more of an influence for, for me than Chris, who I don't think really ever liked the band very much. But to me, it was mostly I felt like I was always playing Neil Young solos. And when I get, I think when I, my guitar playing got compared to Mascus, is most is because we both grew up listening to to those Neil Young going up the neck runs, and I was never as fluid or melodic or anywhere even in the same neighborhood as as Mascus, who is a guitar hero. Um, but with Buffalo Tom, I really felt that Neil Young style really fit, and that's who I grew up. You know, between Keith Richards, Pete Townsend, and, and Neil Young, those were the guys that I played most, I felt like the most direct influences on, on me. Uh, so that's kind of what I hear there, you know, those like two-string ringing notes and bends and feedback, and, and, and that's I, I think I think of Neil more than anything else. The last question I would have on it would be, I, I think this album is engineered beautifully, produced beautifully, I think it sounds great now, um, which is you know, we listen to obviously a lot of nineties records and unfortunately that isn't the case, um, for a lot of the records we listen to. Um, did you guys, and the material is timeless. I mean, is that something that you really, as you went into this record setting out to do, or, um, is it just, you know, sort of an accident? No, no, it it, it was definitely, it was definitely, uh, what we wanted to do. And, uh, you know, like I said, I think let me come over has, had some interesting uh, sonic moments. I love Paul and Sean. I think we were all learning together. 
Uh, but then, you know, it, it got taken away and, and, and remixed by a different guy. So it's, it's got some great sounds, but it does sound a bit more dated to my ears and a bit more like young uh, guys still working it out. Um, uh, still a little bit. I mean, it's definitely a confident record, but not as confident as they'd rather a day. So, you know, when we went out and met the Rob Brothers, the reason we were attracted to them, as I said, was because of the classic warmth of, of the records they had done and, 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 and most... Uh, most uh, relevant was the was the show about Ray, and we were good friends, and went way back with the Lemonheads, and so we we love how it just took the Lemonheads and, and Evan and sort of really shaped it up into this great classic record. I mean, that's one of the classics of that time to me. And but it also tied together with the Robs as these as, as these old seventies guys. I mean, they just approached making records the same way that they had in the seventies, and that's the golden era of record making is the seventies. Mm-hmm. It's like I don't think, in my ears, that recording has improved since the late seventies. Like you know, you know, as soon as it went to digital, it went way off track. And you, I, I, there's some replacements records that are you know and. and that just sound crazy drum samples and everybody was sampling the same snare drum from some, uh, I think literally from some Brian Adams record or something, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, there's some great records from the eighties that were ruined by production. Um, like no guru, no method, you know, from van. And that's the first one that I was, always jumps to my mind and, and tunnel of love from Bruce, which I think is an amazing record, but it just sounds so cheesy sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the 90s, I think people started to get back to, you know, perfecting digital and, and, and using it for good rather than evil. And uh, it, got, it got a little bit better. But what I love, what we loved, all of us, was like that classic big fat tape sound, tube amps, tube, tube, you know, very. What, what we loved about the Robs is like, you know, aside from their 70s shags, which they still maintained, <laughs> but. Uh, they, they they had all this gear and they told us all about it. I, mean, I would never really could tell you the difference between a Neve and a Trident board, but back back then, but you know, I could because they really schooled us. And we, we took the Trident board from Trident Studios in, in in the UK, and we had our engineer come in and make us a custom one that that streamlined the signal chain. So what you hear is basically as as streamlined a signal chain as you could possibly get. So from the voice into the tape, you know. Uh, yeah. And if you want to add stuff uh, to it, you do it. You put it to tape. So, but most importantly with the Robs, they really drove us hard, almost, almost to a fault sometimes. Like, sing it again, sing it again, sing it again, sing it again. Uh, and it really taught me how to be a better singer, how to sing on pitch, how to recognize singing on pitch. And but it was tense, you know. I remember Chris. Chris had sang way less than I had at that point. And, and poor Chris was in that vocal booth doing take after take after take. And, you know, that's when one of us would have to take the other guy uh, and go, hey, let's go get a drink while, while he while he does the vocal tracks here, you know? Yeah. Uh, so they really, and they would say, oh, that's a good idea. Let's do it again. Uh, here's the guitar part. Let's do that again. Let's, and they like stereo stuff. They like two guitar parts. They like, let's do three acoustic parts and pick the best. And, you know, mm. um, but it was great because that, that brought out, it made everything pretty polished, maybe to it. And that's why I said on the next record, we, we reacted against that and went in and we, we want to do this live, you know, live vocals. Mm. So, Did you have, at any point during making this record, did you have any reservations about, you know, having to go play this live as a three piece? Uh, no, no. Uh, you know, I, I think we'd even, we, we, we were even talking about getting guys like Gil Norton who had done the Pixies, but who had gone down, who had gone back to like Echo and the Bunny. And we, we liked big production records as well. 
um, I wasn't concerned about just recording at that point. I mean, I, like I did, I did with later records. Want to get okay? Let's just get it back to meat and potatoes here. Mm-hmm. I was all for trying to flesh out a record and make it sound sound good and not worry about it. And you know, it's just a different version when we record it. Because I grew up with bands like the Stones that did that. You know, they, and Zeppelin. They they didn't try to completely replicate the sounds that they had gotten in the studio. They just approached mm-hmm. it differently. Um, and I don't really want to see a band completely do the same exact sounds. Even when they do their classic records, I want to hear them do something slightly different with it. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that about uh, you know the comparing the live versus the studio. Um, right now, I'm currently reading a book called Rocks Off, 50 Tracks That Tell the Story of the Rolling Stones, which just so happened to be written by you. Um, and it's <laughs> funny because I actually stumbled upon the book completely independently yeah. of... Uh, this interview, I was in my local library, which is actually like less than half a block from my house, so I can walk there. And um, I'm going through, I just will browse the music section every once in a while to see if there's anything I haven't. And I'm like, that name looks familiar. What is this book? And I picked it up and I was like, oh crap, (laughs) really? So can you talk a little bit about, you've mentioned the Stones quite a bit. I know they're an influence on you. Um, where did the, I guess, genesis for that book come from? Um, was it something that you had an idea for and then found a publisher or did you actually write the book and then take it to the publisher? How did that work? No, I, I had that book, um, that I did have the idea for called Exile, about Exile on Main Street, just the Exile on Main Street record. And that was about 2003 or four when they, when, when the 33 and a third series had just kind of gone into its, um, it had, it had they had put out a few, you know what I'm talking about the 33 and third series yeah yeah so it's about classic or cult records and um, uh, and, and my friend Joe Pernice had done one on Meet His Murder and uh, so I asked him and or his manager Joyce uh, you know are they looking for more submissions and uh, she said oh, here's the editor's contact so I, I, I said listen is anybody doing Exile on Main Street do you want one on Exile on Main Street I I could write for days on this record, uh, which I needed to do, obviously, and uh, they were into it. And so I did it on that one, but I hadn't anticipated writing another Stones book. Um, but then their 50th anniversary was coming up, and uh, an agent approached me to see if I wanted to do something to tie it in to the 50th anniversary. And he had that idea of doing it by tracing 50 songs um, through their career. I, I don't know if he, if he had more of a top 50 idea or not, but... It was more like, you know, how about choose 50 songs? That was a great idea because I, I don't want to write I don't want to be a music biographer or ghostwriter so much. Um, but I, I uh, and I, and I, had, I always thought I was going to write again, but I thought maybe it would be something more relevant to my own experience or, or era. And, um, but I, I love that idea. And he, uh, he had already gotten some interest from the from the concept uh, with maybe a different writer who, who didn't end up doing it. Um, and then I, then I took the idea and kind of made it into more of like my own and, and, and tracing, you know, the 50 years from, from their first recorded original signal single all, all the way through their, their latest at that point album. Uh, so it was, it's not, it's not a top 50, but it's like, 50 great songs, I think, that really span that whole era, and I kind of hang the chronology and history of the band and the context of what, what you know what was going on with the band when they wrote that song, how it, how it related to it, and how it represented the era. Uh, and part of my inspiration was this book called um, 
a revolution in the head by Ian McDonald called uh, A Revolution in the Head of uh, the Beatles in the 60s. And he really ties together the events of the 60s with the Beatles recordings and how one influenced the other. Uh, so he contextualizes the songs in, in that way. And so I, I try to do the same thing. I think I, I pulled it off pretty well with, with the Stones book. I, I agree. I'm about two thirds of the way through it because I'm a slow reader. Um, so I only can read about two or three songs an evening. Um, and uh, it's really been educational. I mean, I thought I knew a, quite a bit about the Stones. I mean, I've, I've gone back and listened to all those. You know, they're one of those bands which we don't really have. I guess we've kind of gotten back into singles more. But it seemed like in the 80s and 90s, one-off singles sort of went away, especially in the 90s. You would just put out an album and you maybe do an EP. But having like an actual one-off single that would be, have no relation to an album um, was kind of lost for a while. Um, right. But the, I think the Stones were, you know, really one of those bands that put out some of their best material, not even on records, which is mind-blowing to me um, that, you know, the, the album format hadn't really taken shape the way that it did over the decades. Um, but it's really been an interesting, really interesting going back. And a lot of the songs that I knew it's, it's cool to get the insights, um, that you provide. And then also some of the songs that I was not as familiar with, cause then I can just, you know, hop into my music catalog and, or my music, uh, library and go, Oh, now I can go listen to that. I, I, anytime there's a, a biography book or a, something about songwriting. I don't know if you've read the, um, the Jeff Emmerich book, um, I think it's called Here T- Here Today and Tomorrow, or it's the one about the Beatles. Rec- it's all the recorded history of the Beatles recording. Yeah, and it's yeah, I haven't read that. Fascinating. Yeah, I've got the Beatles Sessions book, and you know, he he plays a, a big part in that. But I haven't read his book yet. Yeah. Which I really, I really would like to. But yeah, and the Beatles um, famously uh, w- w- wouldn't. You know, the, the Stones would, would 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 put singles on albums later in different territories. You know, we're talking about the '60s. When the '70s came around, everybody sort of did the same thing and unified their releases in the UK and and and, and the US for the most part. But right. the Beatles, like, I, I just got the mono set last year, uh, which is great because you realize how many of the Beatles' great songs are not on any record. I mean, I realized that I knew it already, but they wouldn't even succumb to putting on the singles onto one of the albums in the other territory. It was it was single and then the album. That was a whole set of new batch of material, yeah. I think the, the probably the band that did that last and did it well was probably the Smiths. The Smiths put out a lot of singles that weren't on records. Yeah, and, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I think that's good. it did sort of linger in the UK, too, for other bands. You're right. Um, yeah, but with the Stones book... Um, I think my my strength, and and, and, it's, and it's and it's something I'd like to do. And I, I shouldn't say my strength so much as like how I distinguish myself. I think from other music writers is that um, I, I think I'm pretty good at articulating why I love these songs. And I, I had been doing this freelance a bit even before the Exile book on on AllMusic.com when they started doing uh, a song reviews as opposed to just album reviews. And I did a bunch of those just freelancing when my first child was born and I was home with the computer and uh, I loved getting into that and like what was going on in the studio but also like 
why this chord change? What is it? What is it that does? What is it about the song that that brings us to our knees? You know, like why why is this song so great as opposed to these other songs? And and what's he saying there? Oh my God, I can't believe he's saying that. That that kind of stuff is. That's the what. That's what I want. I got. I'm not. I like reading biographies certainly, but um, I would much more when it comes to music. Uh, I'm personally, as a reader, gravitate towards books written by musicians. Like that, that's why Keith's book was particularly valuable to Stones fans, but but even more so to me writing this. I don't know if I would have been able to write that my book, my Rockstar book, with, as well. Without, I'm, I'm certain I wouldn't have been able to write it as well without Keith's in, you know insight that he provided in, in his book. So did you get to do interviews with certain people? I'm assuming that Keith was probably off in his castle somewhere. And not as reachable. Yeah, it's, I didn't. I can't say I killed myself to try to get the stones themselves because I, I just felt like it was it was futile. There, there, there's no, there's no way that they they themselves were going to. But I got all the not all the. I got a lot of the the, the sidemen, including Chuck Lavelle, who's with them in sort of their music director now, who's in the Almond Brothers. Uh, so I got him. I got Andy Johns, the um, the great engineer producer of, of Zeppelin and, and the Stones, Glenn John's brother, who just passed away uh, this past year. So I, I got to talk to him for, for hours in a couple of days. Got to talk to Bobby Keys, the sax player on um, Brown Sugar and everything else. Um, and I got to talk to Mary Clayton on Giving Shelter and talking about, um, when you talk about 20 Feet from Stardom, uh, that's how I got to know the director of, of that movie. I, I did, you know, I, I was looking, trying to track down Mary Clayton, and I saw that this movie was in production, 20 Feet from Stardom, and I reached out to Morgan, and it turns out he was a fan of Buffalo Tom. So he hooked me up with Mary. Uh, so that was an extremely gratifying conversation. And I talked to Chris Kimsey, who did, you know, Some Girls and uh, Emotional Rescue and those 80s records. Uh, as well, so that was fantastic. I got to talk to a lot, a lot of people that were directly involved in making the record. Al Cooper, who plays organ and piano on "You Can Always Get What You Want," he lives around Boston. Yeah, so that that was a fun. But I, I'm I'm a nervous interviewer. I'm not a, a journalist, you know. So once I got over that nervousness, uh, it was it was just a musician talking to other musicians. Gotcha. Well, I can understand that. <laughs> I just have a beer. That's what keeps me uh, from not being nervous. Yeah. <laughs> um, one, one last question before we, we let you go, because we kind of kept you on a little bit longer than we intended. Um, you mentioned earlier about tr- trying to go back through the chronology of Buffalo Tom and put some things in place. Uh, would that happen to be for maybe like reissues, uh, expanded versions on vinyl, that sort of thing? Could we Is there any possibility yeah. of like Big Red Letter Day coming out and double gatefold? 180 gram vinyl in the next year or two. Uh, well, I think we would do let me come over before, and I think we are planning at least on on, on feeling that out. I think let me come over would be 25th anniversary soon. That right? I'm not good with the. It'll numbers. be 2017. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's a little bit far out. So I don't know, but I think we're going to reissue that uh, at some point. We're talking to our old label beggars and. I don't know. We have to figure out as a band. I think we're going to do that. We have to, but we have all kinds. Of, I have all kinds of old demos and archival stuff. So yeah, there's a bit of that. And, and uh, but it wouldn't be. I don't think we'd do Big Red Letter Day first. Uh, Let me come over as more sort of the landmark record. I think for 
for gotcha. for most people. I think that, I think, but I think you're right. I think it's I think I think I think it's sort of half and half, honestly. More people got turned on to us by Big Red Leather Day. I think that record means more to them for that reason. And they, I think it, I think it's most, more more people's favorite in a lot of ways. But you know, there's Tell It's Fade from Let Me Come Over, which the song alone is sort of a signature song for us. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, '86 was the start, so 2016 would be the 30th anniversary just overall of the band. So there could be a tie-in. Maybe put out all three records. You know, uh, put that out with Sleepy. Those two with Sleepy Eyed. You mentioned that being the sort of the trilogy of uh, of the records. That would be a nice little be present for 2016. <laughs> Yeah, 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 I don't know. Uh, yeah, I know. We had our 25th anniversary, which we, which was March, with three shows here in Boston. Uh, but that was really kind of all we did for that. So uh, I don't know. Yeah, we're 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 we we were together in September, and we talked through a few ideas around. But I don't know what's going to come together. We'll see. Well, Bill, I cannot thank you enough for um, spending your Sunday evening with us and talking about all this stuff, getting deep into the various histories and guitar setups and all those sorts of things that we nerd out about. So, um, greatly appreciate your time. And, um, when those do come out, we'll be looking forward to it. Cause I know that right now, I think big red letter day is only available on vinyl in like Europe from the original pressing. Oh, yeah. So, uh, I just have the CD just had the same CD since, uh, 93, I guess. So I'd like to, uh, try it out on my new record player. Since that's coming back. All right. Style, no, you know. thank, thank you guys. If you're interested in your time, I'm, I'm glad to talk about it. And then, of course, uh, you have a bunch of solo records out, and people can go to um, your website, billjanovitz.com, to uh, listen to stuff and buy stuff. And they can also go to buffalotom.com for uh, when there's the posting of a random show. I know you guys don't play much. Uh, or as, as much as you used to, but there's still the occasional show that you guys play, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, certainly between the, in, in the Northeast corridor here. Uh, yeah, we, we, we were touring as recently as, um, you know, across the state uh, in, um, I think 11 was the last time we were out to the West Coast in Chicago and that sort of thing. But yeah, we may start to heat up a little bit more as the kids get older and, we, you know, it's just flexibility with, with life. Well, Bill, thank you. And uh, for all our listeners out there, I uh, want to remind everybody to uh, hit up our iTunes page, uh, leave us some feedback on this episode. Thank all of our listeners at our various outlets, Radio IO, Stitcher, uh, iTunes, Podbean, all that sort of stuff. And uh, that's it. That is our 201st episode in the books, 202 coming up next. Uh, I don't have that one scheduled yet, so we'll have to find out what's going to happen. But... Uh, We'll be back next week with another episode. Dig me out. I suppose I'm just too late Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Hey.